Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We start off with Vancouver crime. Very pleased to welcome back to the show Howard Chow, the Deputy Chief of the Vancouver Police Department. Deputy Chief, thank you for coming on again. Morning, Mike. Thank you. Okay, I really appreciate your time. I follow you on Twitter, which I encourage people to do. Let's talk about some of the cases you guys have been working on. And it's really, I think, an eye-opener to see some of the screenshots from the Vancouver Police Department call list, incoming calls that you've been posting on, on social media, including on Saturday night with around 51 calls holding, calls for service holding at one point, including a grenade call. So a staff at a single-room occupancy hotel calling the police. A tenant just brought down a, a grenade. Can you tell me what happened there, with the grenade call? Sure. It was, uh, like, like you said, a tenant brought it down, asked staff about it. We get the phone call. And, you know, these are very typical calls that we're having to deal with. Uh, you, and so in this particular case, uh, obviously uh, our officers show up there, uh, we bring in our, our explosive experts. They come in, and they have to dispose of the the grenade. And uh, it looks like it's a modified. It was a real grenade, but it's been modified. Uh, but, you know, like you, you kind of nailed it, is that these are the very typical days. Uh, at that particular time uh, when I sent out that, that tweet, uh, we had 51 calls holding. We could have anywhere from, you know, 40 to 100 calls holding, depending on the the time of day and what we've got going on now it's got kind of a typical snapshot in time for the police and that's why i think it's a bit of an eye-opener for the public when they when they see this call list including like hey typical saturday night we got to go respond to a hand grenade call um let's talk a little bit about the the neighborhood response team that the vancouver police have set up in response to uh the public being worried about rising crime in the city can you tell me what's going on there you guys have what had 300 calls to over 300 calls to this new neighborhood response team so far we're just shy of 400 now, and it just it only started two weeks ago. So we're in our 14th day today, as a matter of fact. So it was listening to the public from hundreds of emails, messages, and interactions with the members of the public about the concern in their neighborhood, the increase in crimes in particular Strathcona, Chinatown, downtown, uh, uh, Granville Mall, downtown, Yale Town. So all those areas were, were uh, our members were getting inundated by members of the public and business owners saying, we've got to do something with this. Uh, we also listened uh, to our analytical work from our crime analysts. Um, you probably recall a couple of weeks ago, we released our KPI report for third quarter and we're showing concerning crime increases when typically we should see crime dropping down because of uh, COVID and everybody self-isolating. And finally, we did a survey. It's a typical survey that we put out, uh, usually comes out in February. We wanted to push it ahead to get a sense on where we should be putting our resources. And the survey itself had some pretty grim concerns from respondents. Um, and these are residents and business owners uh, and, and people that come to Vancouver to work. So you, you've, me- you've mentioned in the past that when, when you show those screenshots of the calls for service coming into the Vancouver Police Department, sometimes there's like more than 50 calls, maybe up to 100 calls on hold, people looking for the police to attend. 
uh, a lot of those will not receive an immediate response. You guys have to triage the, your response. The most serious calls, of course, go out first, and the less serious ones, people have to wait. With this neighborhood response team, is that designed to to you know increase the the service uh, the service time, the response time for these sort of less serious com- neighborhood complaints? And that's exactly what it's supposed to uh, intended to do. It's about responsiveness to community concerns. It gives quick response to low priority calls before they escalate. Uh, we're dealing with calls like somebody who's using drugs in a park or in a uh, school ground, somebody who can't get into a building uh, or out of their building because they've got mobility issues and somebody's sleeping there. And these, this is also triggered by a lot of calls that we've gone to when residents are coming into their building and they're trying to wake the person up and then they're getting chased out, chased away by, by knives or uh, pepper spray. We've had multiple incidents like that. Um, but also another part of this is dealing with uh, the homeless, the opioid crisis, and making sure they're doing okay, uh, and making referrals, um, because we know that the homeless people are 19 times more likely to be uh, victimized uh, than those with with homes, and that's a concern for us. Okay, I want to ask you a little bit more about that in a moment, but let me ask you about that. You you touched on the weapons and people being threatened with weapons. How many weapons have been seized by this new police unit? Yeah. I don't know the exact number, but uh, we're talking, you know, 50, 60 weapons that have been seized so far is uh, probably a good estimate, uh, just about of, on a regular basis. What kind of weapons Everything from brass up? knuckles to knives to, uh, uh, you know, replica firearms, um, pepper spray, all sorts of things. Uh, you know, people can get pretty resourceful if, uh, uh, and in particular, those that were pulling replica firearms off of. Eighty percent of them are, are have uh, violent criminal ha- history, so it was a concern for us. Speaking to Howard Chow, he's the deputy police chief of the Vancouver Police Department. Speaking of uh, homeless people and and the response from this uh, neighborhood response team that you've set up, um, not everyone is happy with with the neighborhood response team that's been set up by the Vancouver Police Department. We've seen some advocates, anti-poverty advocates, advocates for the homeless. Uh, filing a complaint to the city's police board. It includes the Pivot Legal Society saying that this new neighborhood response team discriminates against the homeless, discriminates ag- against uh, drug addicts. Uh, how do you respond to that? They want the they want this new unit shut down. Well, I think that stat that I gave early is an important one for all of us to know, is that uh, those that are homeless are 19 times more likely to be victims of crime. I've got a prime incident that took place just last night where a homeless person was stabbed, uh, unprovoked, random stabbing. And uh, so we want to make sure that they're safe as well. But another component that we can't forget about, because we're policing the whole city, is that the homeless people represent 0.3% of the population. And we have to also listen to members of the public who are concerned about their safety and well-being in the uh, in their neighborhoods. And... Predominantly, it's the predators, it's the offenders that are doing this. It's not the homeless people that are perpetuating this. So we're out there dealing with those types of issues. And when you talk about triage and calls, we do have to prioritize. And which the frustrating part is that you may have a lower-level call that doesn't get our attention for hours. And that's what's sparking a lot of the fears and concerns and, and the sense that nothing's being done. And, and that's what the purpose of this team is uh, intended to target. Okay, as the police department gets gets criticism for this new unit saying, like, oh, you guys are just sort of hassling homeless people or you're hassling drug addicts on, on the street, uh, you, you mentioned earlier that 
Uh, one of the things this unit is doing is also referring people to service, right? So, like, if people are homeless, you can help, can you help them get a place to stay? The multiple instances where we're checking on people just in the in the midst of an opioid crisis, make sure people aren't ODing or have OD'd. Uh, we've got a, a couple medical calls that we've jumped on, and it's just simply because of us checking on them uh, by this team themselves. So, uh, and also making referrals for housing, for mental health, for drug addiction. Uh, that's part of it as well. So to suggest for a second that it's targeting the homeless to, uh, um, is, is just inaccurate. It's not, you know, that's not what the intent of this team is to do. Thanks for coming on once again today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, that is Howard Chow. He is the Deputy Chief of the Vancouver Police Department. You heard him talking there about that new neighborhood response team that the VPD has set up. Almost 400 calls to that team so far. They've seized around 40 weapons on the street. Also, he says, uh, helping people to uh, get help if they're homeless or if they're ODing on drugs. But not everybody happy with this unit, as you heard me say to the deputy chief there. My guest is Meenakshi Mano, criminalization and policing campaigner with Pivot Legal. Very pleased to welcome. Hi. Hi. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. What do you think of this new police unit? You want to shut down, right? Well, yeah. And this morning we actually filed a service and policy complaint with the Vancouver Police Department about the team. So, yeah, I think that's how we feel. Okay, I I just spoke to the the deputy chief of the police department saying they've got over 400, close to 400 calls to this unit. They've taken like 40 weapons off the street. Uh, They've intervened in drug overdoses. They've intervened with uh, homeless people who have been victims of crime. I don't know. Why would you want that shut down? I think that our issue with the team is that, one, it was first kind of advertised by the VPD itself as a response to low-priority calls, um, so not necessarily criminal issues. And a number of the examples that you just cited aren't necessarily criminal, right? People overdosing isn't a criminal issue. It's actually an acute health issue. Yeah, okay. Carrying illegal weapons is, is a criminal issue, though, right? Yeah, and, you know, I recognize that folks in communities across Vancouver may feel divided about what's happening in their neighborhoods. Of course, this new neighborhood response team is targeting very specific neighborhoods as well, right? The downtown east side, Chinatown, Gastown, and the Granville Entertainment District. Right, where there's more Um, crime. They're 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 targeting the neighborhoods where there's more crime. And we're also in a moment where we're recognizing that a lot of the issues that have been previously dealt with as criminal issues are actually issues of inequality and oftentimes poverty. Yeah, but if you have actual crime going on, like, you know, he's been releasing some of the the call for service to the Vancouver Police Department. And when you take a look at that call list, I mean, it's just long lists of crime, people being threatened, weapon calls, assaults. Those are actual crimes that are that are happening on the street right now. I mean, what are the police supposed to do? Just ignore it? Like, I don't, I don't understand. How, well, how are, are they supposed to respond? Po- well, first off, there are already police who were responding to criminal calls. Right? We're talking about a team that was created 14 days ago. Yeah. Whose stated purpose was to respond to low priority calls. So I'm not here to comment on whether or not there's crime in the city of Vancouver. I'm talking about a very particular team. Right. So you do you think that this particular team is, I don't know, some biased against homeless people or drug addicts? I think that the, the role that this team is playing in the neighborhoods that it's in and the fact that it's responding to low priority calls yeah. makes it clear that these are calls um, that are related to people who rely on public space, including people who experience homelessness or use substances. Yeah. 
Okay, but one of the things that he said to me was that homeless people themselves are more are 19 times more likely than the rest of the public to actually be victims of crime. Victims of crime. Would would you would, would you accept that? Would you acknowledge that's the case? Yeah, I can absolutely understand how people who are living in public space, who don't have a lot of autonomy, who don't have a door to lock, can experience crime. I think that the issue there, of course, is not that people are experiencing crime alone. It's the fact that they also don't have homes. Yeah, I know. But okay, if if these if homeless people are 19 19 times more likely to be a victim of crime. Why, why do would we it, house why, them? Why yeah, would it not? Absolutely. Well, hang on. But why would it? Why would it not make sense for the police to have a response unit that could respond to the crime that's taking place on homeless people? So I think again, there's a clear misunderstanding here around what the police are doing. Right? They're not preventing those crimes. They're responding to people who may have experienced a crime, including a violent crime like an assault. But again, we need to really look at like the root cause here. Um, if if yeah. people who are homeless are 19 times more likely to experience crime, um, why don't we prioritize housing people so that they can experience safety? Yeah. Okay, but how do you know they're not preventing crime? Like, if this police unit responds to a call of, let's say, an attempted break-in or an assault in progress, and they arrive, they're able to, to save someone who's being assaulted or prevent a property crime from happening, That that's preventing crime, isn't it? I mean, that's really at odds with the stated purpose of this team, which is to respond to low-priority calls. Yeah, but they're responding to assaults. They're responding to property crime uh, reports. But again, the VPD was already responding to those types of calls, so why create a new neighborhood response team? Because there's more crime? But the mandate of this team is not to respond to crime, Mike. It's to respond to low-priority calls. Okay. When we talk about people who've got mental health issues, uh, you know, this is one of the things I hear from people who say we should defund the police because a lot of the problems are due to due to mental health. I'm sure you'd probably agree with that, right? Absolutely. And I've yeah. seen your responses to defunding the police. Yeah. And so the police, for example, will report that of all the mental health calls they receive, 84% of them involve danger of violence or some criminality or threats of violence. So it may be a mental health call, but there's still a criminal element to it. There's still a threat of violence when the police respond. So don't the police have to respond in cases like that? So I think that what you're doing here is really, really mixing up people who experience mental distress with criminals in a frankly dangerous way. Um, and again, that's not well, the you, mandate so of dispute, the neighborhood response team. So you, you don't agree with the police saying that 84% of their mental health calls in, involve some sort of criminality or threat of violence? I believe, believe that people who are experiencing mental distress may be a threat to themselves or someone else. Right. But I think we have, you know, a recognition that mental health issues aren't criminal issues. Yeah, I, I, yeah I'm, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that 84% of the calls to police involve crime or threats of violence and on a mental health call, is my point. You're not saying huh? the threat of violence, so you're saying that 84% of calls may include someone who is at risk of harming themselves or someone else. Yeah, yeah And that so. risk is different than saying someone is a criminal. And it's actually really unfair to the people who do experience mental distress um, to say that they're criminals. Okay. Okay. Thanks for coming on.
It's a, it's an issue. It's an issue we're going to continue to follow. I appreciate your time today. Yeah, thanks. Take care, Mike. Okay, mean mean Akshi Mano Pivot Legal. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the rising number of COVID-19 cases across Metro Vancouver, especially in Surrey. The Fraser Health Authority now announcing that three schools have been closed for two weeks due to COVID-19 cases. Uh, the most concerning one, Cambridge Elementary School in Surrey. Fraser Health says an outbreak of COVID-19 in that school. It has been shut down. Very disturbingly and sadly, they're a very popular music teacher, has contracted COVID. She's in the intensive care unit and hospital. A lot of people hoping for the best, obviously, there for her. Two other schools shut down, Jarvis Elementary and Delta. Six cases of COVID there is shut down. Independent School in New West has seen eight cases. That has also been shut down. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Matt Westfall. He is the president of the Surrey Teachers Association. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Matt. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. Is it a worrying situation in Surrey for for sure. Your thoughts on the surge in COVID cases we're seeing here? Well, we're really concerned about the rising cases in the community, and of course, concerned that we've now Fraser Health has found it necessary to shut down three schools, one of which Cambridge having an official outbreak, yeah. and we think that the. The fact that that is happening now is a symptom of a deeper problem, which is that the current model for schools and the health and safety protocols in it isn't really adequate to handle situations in a community where the levels of transmission are as high as they are in Fraser Health. Okay, very sadly, we see a very popular music teacher in that, that school in Surrey at Cambridge Elementary, Darlene Lorenko, who is a music teacher, uh, has is in the intensive care unit and hospital battling COVID-19. Do you happen to know her? I, I don't know her, okay. it, but it, it, obviously we're really concerned for her and for all, yeah. all the other people who have tested positive and are battling the disease. Yeah, no, it's really troubling. Super popular teacher from all reports. And uh, I mean, the fact that she's a, a music teacher, is that significant? Because aren't weren't music teachers kind of seeing like a larger cohort of kids because lots of different kids come into music class? Is that a, is that a problem? It, it's... It's certainly a big challenge because in the elementary schools, the music teachers see hundreds of students because right, so right. They, they work across all the cohorts. So they, within certain grades, all of the students will get music for part of the week. So that raises concerns for how those teachers can be safe and how students can be. And one thing we like to see is plexiglass barriers, for example, uh, which we've been pursuing, but it's been challenging to actually get those in place for teachers to add that extra layer of protection. Okay, really hoping for the best there for Darlene Lorenko, a very popular yeah. music teacher there battling COVID-19. My guest is Matt Westfall, president of the Surrey Teachers Association. Matt, let me play you this clip from Dr. Bonnie Henry here commenting about COVID in schools. Young people, particularly school-age young people, have very few transmissions or exposure events that, that lead to cases from schools or daycares. And we do um, still see in the older age group it's related to health care, which again reflects um, transmission in our long-term care homes. Okay, Dr. Bonnie Henry still doesn't seem to be, I don't know, overly worried about the potential for big outbreaks in schools, but uh, what are your thoughts on the way she's managing it? Well, uh, I'm really concerned that, uh, that just the reality of the way schools are operating is just, and necessarily so, creates a lot of challenges to prevent transmission. And what I, what I mean is it's not possible to physically distance if you have a, a full class in 
uh, small room, which is the reality in many series schools and elsewhere too. And it's also a challenge when there's no requirement that for anyone to wear masks in a classroom. And that's something we think needs to be mandated. If we were well past time where that's right. a further step that could be taken and should be. Okay, speaking of mandatory masks, let me play this for you. Here's Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum on with Simi this morning on mandatory masks in schools. Surrey is part of the big city's mayors, and we've had um, weekly meetings actually every other day with the big cities across Canada, and a lot of cities have man- mandatory masks. Um, we're not at that stage, I don't think, in Surrey at this stage, but we're awful close to it. Um, certainly, I've been pushing very strongly to everybody in community that we have to wear masks. Okay, he's talking about masks across the across the whole public, but not necessarily uh, in schools schools alone, but it's still the position of the teachers' union, Matt, that masks should be mandatory in schools? Yes, it is. And I guess my question to decision makers is, how bad does it have to get before they they will decide? Mayor McCollum says, well, we're not there yet. Well, what I'm not hearing is really a a plan for when when do we have to move to another stage to maybe have only half of students in, in school at a time? When do we move to mandatory masks? I'm not hearing from the, the decision makers, what, what their plan is for that. And that's really concerning. Okay. What is your observation of people wearing masks on a voluntary basis in school? Like, I got a, I got a son in the public school system, and, and you know everything he tells me is that people are, are following the directions and that they are masking up while they're moving between classes, and it seems to be pretty good voluntary compliance. But, you know, from your perspective on the front lines in Surrey, are, are kids wearing masks? Are teachers wearing masks in school, even though it's not mandatory? I would, it's not universal. I hear varying yeah. reports. So in some schools, people are, people are saying, yes, virtually everyone is in, in class as well, not just between classes. But in other ones, people are saying, yeah, most of the students aren't. And especially hearing from substitute teachers, teachers on call, they see many different classes and they see a wide variation. Right. So you think a mandatory order would increase their compliance? Yes, absolutely. And, and of course, we can't have anyone denied school for not having a mask, so we have to make sure we have enough of a supply so that every student can have it and every staff member, if they happen to lose it, or things like that. Okay, this issue is red hot in the Surrey School District. Let me play this for you. It's Jordan Tinney, who is the uh, Surrey School Superintendent, uh, commenting here on the Simi Sarah Show about where the COVID cases are coming from. Well, this is where we, we don't actually know, right? I mean, we've, when there are cases in the community and there are outbreaks in the, you know, at specific facilities in the community, they come into the school. And then, of course, we have kids together in school, in classrooms. And, and so, again, the transmission has happened in schools in uh, about four situations right now. Cambridge actually would be the fifth, sorry. Um, but beyond that, the transmission is happening in the community and in homes and in businesses. And then the people are coming into schools. And then that's where we issue the notices. And then we watch very carefully to see if there's any spread at the school. Okay, he's talking there about, I think he's at five schools in Surrey where they've had transmission of COVID at the schools. Is that your understanding as well, Matt? Uh, yes, it is. Although I would say that anecdotally, a lot of teachers are wondering whether that's actually the case because the standard for determining if it's been transmitted in the school is pretty high. But there's many cases where a teacher says, look, I, a student said they had COVID. I haven't heard anything about it. And now the student who sat next to them, they're homesick. And I haven't actually heard anything officially from Fraser Health. And it certainly looks to me like maybe that happened. But on an official level, they're not really hearing anything. And that's creating a real sense of unease and concern about how much of a handle the health authorities have on it, given our really high number of cases.
Yeah, as a lot of people have been complaining about that from the very start, that some of the information coming out is, is not clear or the information's a little bit vague. So, for example, at Cambridge Elementary School in Surrey, which has now been shut down for two weeks, the, the, uh, Fraser Health is classifying that as an outbreak. In other schools that have been shut down, they say there's only been a cluster of cases. Like, what, what's the difference between an outbreak and a cluster? I'm not entirely sure, Mike, uh, and Frank, and I think a lot of people are having confusion about where the distinction is. You know, I think a cluster is, they think the cases may be linked, uh, and an outbreak, it really seems likely that it, it is being transmitted in the school, not just within someone's cohort. You can't always pinpoint exactly who gave it to whom. Okay, let me play a clip here for Terry Mooring, the president of the BC Teachers Federation, on with Simi this morning, and she's commenting here on what the union wants to see happen. It's no doubt that the communities are impacting schools. Um, so schools are experiencing more and more exposure events that we're concerned about. And then when you have an exposure event, you always have the chance of in-school transmissions. We've been calling on government to act in terms of those in-school transmissions to reduce them um, by implementing a mask policy. And at this point, we're saying, you know, the situation in Fraser Health is very concerning to us and families and so we think that school uh, classrooms also should be capped at 15. Okay, this is like the drumbeat on the face mask. I've been going on for months here from the teachers' union saying we want a mandatory mask order, and it hasn't come yet. Uh, Matt, you already talked about the mandatory mask situation. You, you continue to call for that. What about reducing class size? Like you heard her say there, we should reduce the number of kids in a class to 15 kids. I mean, is that even possible? It is possible, because what we're not talking about is doubling the number of classes or teachers, but you take an existing class and you split them in half. So Vancouver secondary schools, that's the teachers only see half the class in person at any given time. So it's a hybrid model. And that's in Vancouver secondary schools, what I'm hearing from colleagues there is they're feeling relatively safe, because you can have the distancing in the room, which you can't have when you have the full class there at any given time. Right, so when you, when you said that you would not have to hire more teachers uh, if you split the class in half, what does that mean? The, te- the teacher would only teach each class half time or something? Yeah, each, of the, each, uh, each half of the class. They're there part of the time with the teacher, and the other part of the time they're working remotely. Yeah. yeah. Right. And that, because and- that's really the only way to have a balance between the health and safety and also the educational needs. Because we want, if we believe that it's really important for kids to be able to be at school, and we do, that's, that's a way to make it more sustainable. Because I'm really concerned that the current model of having full classes at school is just not going to be able to stand up in places where the transmission is really high. Right, right. And that's to achieve more more space between the kids, right? Just keep Absolutely, spread, yeah. spread people out, do the physical distancing. Do you think that, you know, we see we see uh, schools shut down for a couple of weeks in Surrey here, at least, three, at least three schools. Who knows? Maybe there'll be more. But what about an early Christmas break? You shut the schools down early. I think that's something, as we get closer to the holidays, that's something that the public health authorities are going to have to consider. And I'm sure they are looking at that, given that there's talk about that in Ontario and Quebec. Yeah. Yeah. Matt, thank you for coming on. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks a lot. Matt Westfall there. He's the president of the Surrey Teachers Association with the latest on COVID-19 in the school system especially. All right, welcome back to the show. This is Mike Smith. Let's talk about COVID-19 behind bars now, the spread of the virus in prison, troubling situation 
for prison inmates and potential spread of COVID-19 in prisons and jails in Canada. Let's talk about that issue now with my guest, Emily Coyle, Executive Director of the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Societies. Hi. Hi, how are you this morning? I'm great. Thanks a lot for coming on. The Elizabeth Fry Society, can you can you explain to the uh, listeners briefly what, what you guys do there? Sure. So we're an organization that has membership across the country. Our members work on the ground providing programming to vulnerable and criminalized women, girls, and gender diverse folks. And our organization, which is the national organization, monitors conditions of confinement in the prisons that are designated for women. And we also uh, work on policy and legislative reform and change. Right. What's going on with COVID-19 in in prisons in Canada right now? So what people aren't aware of is that um, they have put, they've implemented a really strict regime in the prisons in order to prevent the prisoners from uh, getting sick. But unfortunately, what we've seen in the cases where COVID does enter into the prisons, that it can spread very rapidly. Um, and it has, particularly in British Columbia, as you know, with Mission, um, yeah. it spread very rapidly there. And across the country, we've seen whenever it came into the prisons, it was it was pretty dire. Um, and so the way that they've compensated for um, being unable to socially distance, which is what we've been asking for since March, um, is to, in fact, lock people down for extended periods of time, which has affected their mental health tremendously. Um, I know that everybody who's listening probably feels the effects of lockdown. We've all done them. We know what they feel like. But we are able to leave our homes. We're able to have agency over our own beings. And prisoners don't have that agency. And the people who are supposed to be taking care of them in this situation are the correctional officers. Um, and there's a traditionally very toxic relationship there, so it doesn't bode well for the prisoners. Yeah, you mentioned the, Mich- the Mission Prison in British Columbia. It's a federal prison. Mm-hmm. And I, rem- I remember very early on there was an outbreak of COVID-19 in, in that facility. And then I think they, they got beyond it, though, right? I mean, is there still COVID in there? Well, actually, it's interesting. I- I just saw today that there may be a new case of COVID admission again. But yes, they did get beyond it during that first wave. And now we're into a second wave, uh, which is worrying for everyone, although we do know a little bit more about how um, COVID is spread and how we can prevent it by wearing masks and being socially distanced. And what we asked for at the beginning was, please depopulate the prisons as much as you can. Get the vulnerable people out of the prison so that they don't catch covid um, and that has not happened as fast uh, or to the extent that we would like it to. How much COVID is there in Canadian prisons? Like, there, have there been many outbreaks or are, are those type of stats and details released by authorities? They are. So if you wanted to go to Correctional Services Canada website, you can see just how many people uh, have been tested, uh, how many people have um, contracted COVID-19, where, etc., So if people are interested, they can go to the Correctional Services Canada COVID-19 page to see those kind of statistics. And what do those numbers look like? Um, Well, what it shows to me is that um, where COVID is introduced into an institution, it spreads very, very rapidly. And and what ends up happening um, on the human side of things is that people are isolated because they're sick. 
but they're isolated in in these prison conditions that are that are horrific. Um, I was speaking recently to uh, someone who was explaining that um, when the person that they love, because there are many loved ones in prison, when the person that they love was um, was ill, he was put into a, a very small room, no blanket, cold air coming in. Um, and at the same time, he's trying to fight COVID. So, so you know, if you have this really um, tense environment that already has really terrible health care, um, you know, you're going to have kind of a perfect storm for people being treated badly. And they're already not feeling well. So, huh. Okay, speaking to Emily Coyle, Executive Director, Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Societies, and we're talking about COVID-19 in prisons and jails in Canada. So... Like right now, if there is an outbreak or there are some cases of COVID-19 in a facility, you were talking about the, the lockdown strategy. So how does that work? Is prisoners are kept in their cells? Yeah, so it depends. So we go into the prisons that are designated for women, and they have a little bit of a different layout than the other prisons that are designated for men. And so uh, in the prisons designated for women, they have little homes um, in the general population. And so those homes, many of them are cohorted together and, and they are allowed to leave their cells or their homes only for 15 to 30 minutes a day, depending on the institution. Um, and at all other times, they have to remain inside uh, unless they've been given permission to go now into the limited programming. But when everything locked down, everything was shut down. Nobody was allowed in. Programming was stopped. Visitors were stopped. Um, in-person visitors were stopped. And so um, now they're starting what is called the new normal, but people remain in these cohorted bubbles, they're calling them. Um, And so they still have the requirement to stay locked into their homes um, for 22, 23 hours a day, depending on where where they are. Okay, I mean, that obviously sounds terrible, but I mean, given the alternative of the potential for the virus to spread in these facilities, I mean... What is wrong with that? Or is there, is there a better way to stop the spread of this disease in facilities? Yeah. So what we had asked for at the beginning was put your resources into depopulating the prison using the mechanisms that are at your disposal. Let people out. Let people go to parole to other uh, parole into the community put um, you know, resources into the community to ensure that people have the ability to reintegrate or rehabilitate once they get out of prison. If someone is really close to their parole date, for example, why not bump up that parole date by a month and let that person out so that, again, you have the ability to socially distance within the prison. Because it's a congregate living environment, it's really impossible to socially distance uh, as effectively as we can in the, in the general public. And so that is really the one thing that the World Health Organization had recommended. Um, But what we're seeing is public health agencies in the provinces and in the the federal government, the federal public health agencies that are advising Correctional Services Canada on the methods that they should be taking to spread COVID-19 without an understanding of what the prison uh, system is like and what the environment is like and what that does to a person's mental health. Right. Okay, well, the federal government, I know, has said in the past that releasing prisoners as, as a way to mitigate COVID is actually something that they're, they're doing. So let me play this for you. This is um, Bill Blair, federal safety minister here on why paroling some inmates is important. Bill Blair. 
I think it's important to understand um, the context of, of the federal inmate population. Uh, first of all, there are about 14,000 people in our federal institutions. Almost a quarter of them are serving life sentences and not eligible for parole. And, and therefore, we are taking the steps necessary for those who are not eligible for parole. Um, and that includes almost half the population who are serving sentences for very serious violent crimes. And so we are taking the steps that are necessary to keep them safe within the institution. Okay, so, you know, for people who are listening and thinking, well, hang on a sec, you know, you're not talking about letting out murderers or people who have committed violent offenses or danger to the public. You're not talking about letting them out, right? No, and and I'm not sure when that quote was taken. Um, was it a recent quote? No, that was, that was uh, earlier in the pandemic. Yeah, and so, yeah, certainly they had committed to trying to do whatever they could to depopulate the prisons at that point. But if you look now, the federal prison population has only fallen by about 2% since March. So it really hasn't been a significant change. And I think that there's um, this misunderstanding about why people are in prison and the reasons people end up in prison and the population that we work with, which are in the prisons that are designated for women, the majority of the people that are in there are not in there for violent crimes. There is a misunderstanding about the security risk that would come from releasing people. And, you know, most people are in prison for poverty related reasons, trauma related reasons, addiction, which we've all seen particularly in BC is actually a health concern, and it shouldn't be criminalized. Um, and so what we really need to be doing is investing in the community organizations like the Elizabeth Fry Societies who do the programming on the ground to, to help people uh, to reintegrate and rehabilitate once they've decided to okay. depopulate the prison. Okay, what about, um, I mean, the, fe- the federal, federal prisons are one thing, and you mentioned there's, there's been a, two, a 2% reduction there in the prison population at the federal level. In, at, in provincial prisons, though, I think the, the drop has been more, right? I mean, I read one report earlier in the pandemic uh, from StatsCan. It said that uh, Canadian, you know, people incarcerated in provincial jails had dropped by 25%. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I can only speak to what I know and have seen in several of the provinces. In fact, I think in Nova Scotia, it dropped even more dramatically than that. So um, the, some of the provinces did take that depopulation very seriously. Um but the challenge, of course, is, as we all know, because of COVID-19, it's really shone a spotlight on the fact that we don't have adequate resources in the community. And so in order to properly depopulate and properly rehabilitate, you have to, hand in hand with depopulation, there has to be investment in community organizations that do that important work. Okay. Uh, what would you say to people who are listening to this and thinking like, no, I mean, if you do the crime, you do the time. Do not let people mm-hmm. out. They have to serve they have to serve their time. I understand that COVID-19 is a risk, but if you let habitual offenders out, like a lot of people may not be in for violent crimes, but maybe they might be into they might be in for um, repeat property crimes, for example. If, and if you let them out, yes, yeah, sometimes it's related to drug addiction and mental illness. But you know, if you let people out, they're just gonna it's just gonna be the revolving door. They just return to a life of crime. So therefore, do not let them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I do feel like a bit of a broken record because I've probably said this three, four times already, but if you invest in community and you invest in programming that both help to address 
the core reasons that people end up in prison or criminalized in the first place, you're going to see a drop in recidivism. And that includes addressing, you know, poverty, addressing housing issues, addressing um, addiction issues, addressing mental health issues. We, We have so many people in the prisons that we go into with mental health issues Um, that are not being adequately cared for, not in the prisons and not in our communities either. And it's really important that our, that our whole country look at a strategy to deal with that. Um, and, you know, I really wish people could meet the people that we work with in the prisons and you, and meet their families and their loved ones. I can tell you that there are probably many people listening to your show today who have loved ones in prison who will say to you, I want you to know my son, my daughter, my, my, my brother, my mother or my father as a human being that they are, yeah. and to know that we love them. And, and so th- these are human beings, and they are afraid, yeah. and they feel like they're sitting ducks in prison, right? Like they can't do anything about COVID-19 once it comes in. They don't have any control. They don't have any agency over their own environment. So that's the challenge during COVID-19 is how do we deal with, people who are so vulnerable, as we've seen in the long-term care facilities, et cetera. Okay, important issue. Do we continue to follow it closely? Thank you very much for coming on today. Can I just mention that we have a spotlight on solitary confinement um, that's happening over the next 15 days. And if you go to the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Society's Facebook page or the John Howard Society of Canada Facebook page, you'll see that we have a series of events happening over the next 15 days really highlighting for everyone in Canada that solitary confinement and segregation continues in Canada, but by any other name. And in fact, in your uh, province, Prisoner Legal Services has released a report today showing, particularly in your province, what the egregious conditions of solitary Mm. confinement that continue. So please do uh, join us in in many of these events. We'd be happy to have people there. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. Okay, Emily Coyle, Executive Director of Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Society. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about one of the most iconic institutions in our city now and how they're during, during, uh, doing during COVID-19. Science World, one of the most recognized tourist destinations in Vancouver. Everyone can instantly recognize the geodesic dome on False Creek, originally constructed as part of Expo 86. Uh, 22 million visitors to science world and like a lot of institutions in our city have been going through difficult times during COVID-19 they had to shut down earlier in the pandemic they're hanging in there though let's check in with Tracy Reddy's now she is the president and CEO of science world very pleased to welcome her hi hey Mike great to talk to you thanks a lot for coming on the important thing to note here science world is open right you guys are still open right now Absolutely. It's open and uh, we have visitors coming through our doors and they're giving us great reviews in terms of uh, having fun, safe, uh, scientific uh, experiences. So um, we're very pleased in terms of how uh, our team has stepped up to the plate to make sure that uh, our visitors feel comfortable with their kids and can come and have a great experience. Okay, that's good to hear. People can, uh, if they want to visit Science World, you have to make a, a reservation in advance. Is that how it's working these days? You can do either. You can uh, make a reservation in advance, uh, buy an online ticket, or um, come to our doors. Um, we just have a few more questions to be asked when you come through the, the door without uh, the advance uh, purchase, but um, it, we can we can accommodate uh, uh, everybody. 
Okay, you took over as CEO of Science World back in, in the summer when we were still uh, struggling with the, the pandemic. And man, what a difficult time for this, uh, this historic institution in our city for you to, for you to take over there. Uh, what was it like when you, I guess you like a challenge, huh? I mean, is that why you wanted to go in there? <laughs> well, you know what? I mean, you, you said it uh, in your um, uh, preambles that it's an iconic uh, institution. Yeah. Science World is doing, um, you know, fabulous job of, of disseminating uh, science-based education across the province, frankly, helping both, you know, kids from, from K to 12, but also helping uh, teachers uh, uh, teach science in classrooms. So, you know, I knew it was a, a wonderful organization that was doing a lot of good work. There's no question we're going through a very challenging period, and as are many, um, you know, tourism attractions, but... You know, we're here for the long haul, and uh, and like I said, I'm, I'm really impressed with how the team has been responding. Okay, I love hearing that, because this is such a, an iconic part of our city for sure. We've already seen the Vancouver Aquarium shut down earlier during the pandemic, and hopefully they can come back, and I think it would be you know tragic to see something similar to happen to, to Science World. So I'm glad to hear you're still open, and you've, you've got a plan here going forward. Like how, how tough has it been during COVID-19 that for an institution that relies on visitors coming through the turnstiles here, how difficult has yeah. it been for sort of the bottom line over there? Well, it's 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 been difficult. I mean, we're running at about um, anywhere from fifteen to thirty percent of the attendance levels that uh, um, you know we would normally have been experiencing. Um, you know, we have had taken steps to cut costs. Um, we are leveraging the the Canada uh, uh, wage subsidy program that the federal government has put uh, out there, which, which has been very helpful. Um, and we're you know looking for new ways of, of disseminating our. Um, our content and, um, you know, looking at uh, different partnership opportunities as well. So, you know, on the one hand, it's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity to kind of relook at the, the business and uh, the organization and see, you know, what will work best in a, you know, as we go forward in a, uh, a pandemic and post-pandemic right. world. And that's what we're focused on. Are you, are you looking for more government assistance right now? We would love to have more government assistance, yeah. I think, as every other tourism attraction would. And, I mean, we're very um, we're hopeful. We're having good conversations with the government. Um, uh, we'll be speaking, actually, to the government's tourism task force this week. Uh, the, I think the thing, with, as far as the government is concerned, is just that, you know, if there is a level of urgency out there because people and organizations have been uh, moving along now for many months through this uh, pandemic. And it's probably going to take a... Um, a while before, you know, we see kind of more normal attendance uh, coming to attractions and that. So, you know, I, I really hope that the government thinks about this as a long-term partnership to make sure that the um, tourism and uh, attraction industry uh, survives in a, in a, in a healthy manner. Yeah. Speaking to Tracy Reddy, the CEO of Science World, it, it was great to see uh, Science World getting inventive, getting creative to try and get remind people that you're still there, you're still open, looking for public support. You had Dr. Bonnie Henry at an, at an event recently, right? Yes, we did. It's fantastic. She came and she was our keynote speaker at our Girls in STEAM uh, uh, conference. And that's a, a, a conference that's really um, uh, is trying to get, uh, well, 11 and 13-year-old girls uh, interested in science and um, so she did a keynote speech. We had about 35 people in our theater, but more, almost as importantly, we had about 1,500 girls online. And this is what I mean by new opportunities. Last year, we would have only had 300 people at the Dome um, for that event. 
this year we were able to reach 1500 you know using wow. uh, digital tools and i think that's an interesting opportunity for us in the future sort of how do we use the digital uh, space to uh, bring scientific learning to um, you know bc uh, students across the province yeah for sure and, and uh, bonnie henry you've got the world needs more nerds i love the <laughs> i love the marketing campaign the marketing slogan for science world and you got a, a picture of bonnie henry when she was seven years old on on your homepage. so i think that's really cool to see her uh, pitching in and, and helping out here for for yeah, science she was world fabulous yeah, I'm sure she was. And and for people who want to, for people who want to help Science World, what what would you recommend? I mean, you know, obviously come and visit, but can you do you guys take donations? Can you can you go online and buy and buy uh, merchandise? Absolutely. Well, thanks for um, saying that, Mike. I mean, we are a nonprofit organization. I know a lot right. of people don't know that, but we are a nonprofit, and definitely you can donate online. Um, uh, we do have uh, an online store that we're, we're getting. Uh, uh, up and ready. It has a lot of our nerds merchandise, so I'll have to make sure that you get uh, a, a nerds t-shirt, Mike, so that okay. you can uh, flash it around the uh, uh, the city. I hope better days are ahead, and I, I think there are some hopeful signs in the future into the new year. So thanks for coming on to talk about Science World today. Well, thanks, Mike. I really appreciate it. Anytime. Yeah, you bet. That's Tracy Reddies. She is the CEO of Science World, going through some tough times, but their doors are still open. And uh, you can still visit Science World. The Vancouver Aquarium has shut down. Hopefully they can come back. But Science World still hanging in there during COVID-19. As you heard her say there, you can go online. You can make a donation to Science World. They're nonprofit. They've got cool merchandise online, too. I'm a big believer and big supporter in some of these institutions in our city going through these difficult times here for COVID-19 and hoping they can hang in there, survive, and come back stronger than ever. Thanks a lot for Tracy Reddy. All right, welcome back to the show. COVID-19 cases surging in British Columbia and bracing again for another big number this afternoon, 3 p.m. That's when Dr. Bonnie Henry, the provincial health officer, and Adrian Dix, the health minister, will have the latest COVID-19 updates, multiple day totals coming. So it could be another big COVID number this afternoon. Are we getting closer to more lockdowns? of our economy in order to stop the spread of this virus. We see this happening in other jurisdictions. We see more lockdowns happening in Canadian provinces. Just look next door in Washington State, where the state government has just shut down indoor restaurant dining, bars, gyms, cinemas, theaters, museums, all being shut down in Washington State to control the spread of COVID-19. What about the possibility of more lockdown measures in British Columbia, would that be fair to businesses that are struggling to hang on through this pandemic? Let's talk about that now with my guest, Dan Kelly. He is the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. They represent small business across the country. Dan, thanks for coming on. Good morning. Can you give me an update on some of the measures that have been taken in other parts of, parts of the country? Like, are, are, how many? What sort of lockdown measures are taking place in other provinces now? The big ones. Well, you know, uh, right at this point, there are about 65% of businesses that are fully open, about a third of Canadian businesses, if you can believe it, still at this late date, eight months into the pandemic, are either fully or partially closed, with more becoming fully closed as we speak. Uh, the cities of uh, most of the major cities out east in Toronto, Montreal, uh, have uh, a complete uh, closure of indoor restaurant dining, uh, rest, uh, uh, fitness clubs, uh, for the most part, 
uh, arts and recreation businesses are, of course, uh, still closed. Manitoba, though, has the most significant swath of lockdowns. Virtually everything is shut down in Manitoba once again. It's back basically to where it was in, in March and April. Uh, so all retailers are closed other than those selling essential goods. Uh, and that's creating its own set of challenges as small businesses are closed, but big box stores like Costco and Walmart can remain open. Uh, so we're seeing more and more closures across the country affecting a wider swath of the business community. And these are businesses that are so much weaker than they were uh, back in March uh, yeah. because they've used up any kind of room that they might have had uh, through the first eight months of the pandemic. Are there a lot of businesses out there that were hoping for a strong or a relatively strong retail season here with Christmas shopping set to ramp up and maybe that would help save them. Maybe a good Christmas shopping season might help some businesses to hang on and avoid bankruptcy. You're, you're absolutely right. Look, for, for those in the retail service sector, hospitality sector, uh, the six weeks leading up to Christmas is typically their busiest time. Right. Uh, and, and for some retailers, they tell us that they could have 50% of their sales in the six weeks leading up to the Christmas season. That's what helps their businesses survive typically in the lean months early in the new year, January, February, and March, is that they have some cash flow from the, uh, from the sales that they've made at, at the Christmas season. If your business is locked down and not able to make those sales, obviously you're, you're absolutely apoplectic right now, and that's what's happening to small retailers in Manitoba. But even without restrictive measures, the, the messaging from medical offices of health right across the country has been to reduce your exposure to the public, to stay home uh, either entire, entirely or more, save a weekly trip to the grocery store. And as a result of those messages, uh, 50% of businesses across Canada have seen a further reduction in sales as a result of right. the rising second wave. And uh, over a third, 37% of businesses have told us that they are losing money every single day they are open. And so that doesn't, you don't even need a lockdown for that to take place. That's happening just as a result of consumers voting with their feet and their feet are being planted at home. All right, speaking of Dan Kelly, he's the CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. You posted the other day on social media, I understand why a growing number of people are calling for a lockdown. People, including political leaders, want something, anything done to slow the growth in COVID numbers. But the limited data that's been shared suggests the spread is from personal activity, not shopping or dining out. It's a lot to ask business owners to essentially shutter their operations a second time, knowing that for many, this will lead to certain bankruptcy. You got a lot of, a lot of attention, Dan, for that, for that post. Is your point there that, you know, the spread that we're seeing, the COVID outbreaks that we're seeing are largely not happening in, in places of business? That, that's exactly it. Look, there has been limited data shared with us, with the public, uh, about where the source of, of COVID infection is, it, what the real sources are. And the little limited data that has been shared that's been broken down by activity suggests that far more of it is happening as, as a result of personal contact that people are having in their homes or with groups of friends rather than what's happening in business activity, either right. in, in the course of work or uh, in the course of shopping or, or dying. And and, and again, I, I want to be clear, businesses largely supported the fairly draconian lockdowns that happened in the spring because the governments were dealing with something that they really didn't know. There was limited information, and, and so people tolerated 
the fact that they had to shut their business down and, and did that. I think that the compliance of that was, was incredible, given how serious the implications uh, were held for small and medium-sized companies. But this is different. Business owners are asking the question, I think they deserve an answer, is it shopping in a small retailer that is causing uh, COVID transmission? And if it's not, why are you shuttering their doors in, in some markets? Is it restaurant dining that's causing that? I don't think people would still object at this stage if there's a compelling case that can be made that a certain business activity is causing COVID infections in large numbers, that, that, that there need to be uh, severe measures taken in those sectors. But the across-the-board circuit-breaker-style lockdowns are, I think, what, what we're worried about. They're applied right now in Manitoba. There are increasing calls to do the same right across Canada. And, and those, we should know, have massive, massive impact on, on the business right. community. So we need to make sure that we only do that if it's absolutely necessary. And if it is, governments get better get their checkbooks out because we need full 100% immediate support for businesses that are, so, that, that, that are then affected. Okay, British Columbia has largely resisted any major kind of across-the-board lockdowns of business. A lot of businesses early in the pandemic back in the spring shut their doors voluntarily. They were not ordered to shut down. We have seen some lockdown measures at a, on a regional basis in British Columbia here the last couple of days with, with numbers surging. We see uh, gym classes, for example, shut down. We just saw a gym in Surrey shut down the other day after there were 42 COVID cases there at, at a gym in Surrey. So, you know, it, it seems like the government here is it, it doesn't really want to swing that heavy hammer. But with COVID cases rising, are, are you concerned that they'd be under pressure to, to bring the hammer down and like restaurants are in British Columbia are still open right now, but who knows there could be pressure to shut them down. But your thoughts. Yeah. And that's exactly why we're, we're speaking out right now is we need to make sure that whatever measures we're taking, severe measures we're taking, that they are actually leading to a reduction in COVID transmission. If they're not, if it's a, if it's a measure to, to, for a government to show that they're doing something, that's the part that I think uh, yeah. we object to because, of course, that A, it's not effective, and B, it's having massive, massive unintended consequences. The support programs from the governments are just not in place to be able to, or at least not proportionate to the size of the problem that they are creating. Okay. And if, uh, it, is, if it is personal transmission that's happening in, in parties and, and, and people's homes, perhaps that's where governments need to do, take the, put their resources. Right now, the business community is feeling like they're being singled out because it's easier to shut down business than it is to shut down personal activity. Okay, Dan, last question for you. You mentioned that if more lockdown orders are, are inflicted in Canada, government better get their checkbook out and, and help businesses that are hurt. We've seen a lot of money go out the door from government. Do you think it's not been enough? Well, look, it's it's not at all enough compared to the size and scope of the problem of what's impending with the second round of lockdowns. Just by way of comparison, in the first, it, it, the wage subsidy, for example, one of the best working programs the Fed's put on the table. Uh, back in the spring, a business with a 30% revenue loss got a 75% wage subsidy. Now that same business gets a 24% wage subsidy. There's no rent support program in place. While one is coming, it still hasn't passed the House of Commons. And third, there's supposed to be an expansion of the SIBA loan program, and that hasn't been delivered yet either. So we're shutting down more businesses without proper supports in place to help them. And remember, these businesses are being shut down not because they've made bad decisions or they're in a bad industry. 
They're being shut down in order to protect society. So it seems deeply unfair to ask small businesses, members of CFIB and others across the country, to pay the price of this themselves. Thanks for coming on today. Anytime at all. Okay, I appreciate it. That is Dan Kelly. He is the CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. They represent small businesses across Canada. Just setting the alarm that more lockdowns could really hurt business here, especially in the run-up to the Christmas season. Now, like I said to him, in British Columbia, we have not seen large-scale, aggressive government lockdowns of the economy here uh, during COVID-19. But with the numbers rising, there could be more pressure for government to bring the hammer down.